welcome everyone. It's so good that you came. I'm Annie. I'm one of the team of people organising for Rising Tide in Canberra. In my day job, I'm a scientist researching ecology and economics. And I'm here because I believe a strong, disruptive movement of people is our best hope of avoiding catastrophic climate change. Mm. Yeah. Before, before I go any further, I need to do a quick disclaimer. Um, I'm here in a personal capacity and I'm not representing the views of my employer, CSIRO. <laughs> Please, please say it's like me. <laughs> so, tonight is the fifth stop on Rising Tide's climate justice tour. Rising Tide organisers Alexa, Sean and Naomi from Newcastle have been travelling 5,000 kilometres over 18 days to build the People's Blockade of Newcastle, the world's largest coal port the 24th to the 28th of November. They visited Brisbane, Lismore, Adelaide, Melbourne, and now Canberra, and the last stop is Sydney before they get home. This forum is called Disruption to End Climate Destruction, which is what the United Nations Secretary General said is needed this year, 2023. This event will let you know how we can build that movement and how the People's Blockade is an essential step on that path. We'll hear from four speakers and then outline what's planned for the blockade. We'll also hear from, uh, from John, one of the organisers here in Canberra, about um, what you can do to help build the blockade by spreading the word locally. We'll wrap up the formal part of the evening by about quarter to seven, but if you need to leave early, please sign up um, to the blockade, express your interest using the QR code on the flyers on your seats, and take some posters and flyers with you on your way out if you do need to leave early. So now it's over to you for a short time. I'd just like to invite you to introduce yourself to someone sitting next to you. Hopefully someone you haven't met before. <laughs> next, I'd like to invite Emma Davidson to the stage. Emma has kindly offered to do the Acknowledgement of Country for us. And Emma um, is a member of XRACT. Uh, hi, I'm Emma. Um, I'm one of your local XR members. I'd like to start by saying Dawara Nuna Dawara Nunawul, Yangu Nalawiri Duni Manyan, Nanamulwari Dawara Wari, Ningada Dindi Wangarili Jinyan. This is Nanamul country and today we are gathering on Nanamul country. Uh, we always respect elders, female and male. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land and sovereignty was never ceded. I know that there are many people and uh, families who have a connection to Canberra and the region. And uh, Canberra has always been a place where people come together to share knowledge and ideas. So to become a truly reconciled nation, 
to be able to truly care for country and for each other, we must listen to, understand and support our First Nations people. Uh, and this is why truth, treaty and voice is important. Uh, and it's why I will be supporting a referendum for an Indigenous voice to Parliament, um, as well as the work of truth and treaties. So I pay my respects to First Nations um, elders, past, present and future. And I pay my respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here with us today. Now, the reason why I uh, do that in Ngunnawal and Auslan, uh, and why I was talking about the, the truth, treaty and voice um, work that we need to do, is because I listen to our local elders here. I listen to our most senior Ngunnawal elder, Arnie Violet. Uh, I listen to um, our uh, Australian uh, Elder of the Year, um, Arnie Matilda House. Um, I listen to Selena Walker as the co-chair of the ACT Reconciliation Council. I listen to Katrina Fanning. I listen to Crystal Langford, who is our ACT Elder of the Year. Um, and they tell me that they want us to be all in on these conversations and to be inclusive. And so uh, that's what we want to do, just as we need to be all in on caring for our planet. So thank you. And next I'd like to introduce Amy Blaine. Amy is a passionate climate and social justice advocate. She works for a safe climate future for her young children and all children through organisations such as the People's Climate Assembly and the Australian Conservation Foundation. TikTok. How do we speak so that people stay interested? To leave them so they feel compelled to act? TikTok. How is there enough time to unpack your heart, your story of climate trauma, and to cover the enormity of living in a climate emergency? Parenting two small children that carry the bushfires from 2019 in their 10-year-old and three-year-old bodies and minds. Unraveling the systemic barriers and tendrils of the fossil fuel companies and how we continue to carry on picking the seemingly unwinnable fights. TikTok, time is running out. It's 7 a.m. and I get a text from a friend. It's simple in its message. Have you evacuated? The brown is closed. Are you still in Bermagui? My mind went from what and why and what's brown to slowly realizing I've been hearing sirens. I go to the window and open the blind. It's pitch black. I keep saying to my partner, Danny, why is it so black? Why is it so black? And then my friend calls, says things like a bushfire kit, evacuate, head to the beach. My mind is going, it's our Christmas holiday. We have a newborn, this can't be happening. We traveled the day before people were told not to go. The Shoalhaven website said the fires were 120 kilometers away and urged people to still visit. The fires traveled huge distances overnight. The sky went from black to red, which felt better, but meant things were worse. And then black again. It was smoky everywhere, and we were weighing up whether it was better to stay inside or to go to the evacuation centre. What was better for tiny lungs? 
As a parent, nothing rips your heartstrings more than your child looking into your eyes and asking you if we're going to be okay and having no idea if you will be. The flyers are close enough that ashes falling from the black sky, we're evacuating to the beach. We hear thunder, we're terrified. We can see the blur of the fire and it's not far enough away. The wind picks up, ash is blowing everywhere. Suddenly it's daylight and everyone's relief is palpable. Tick-tock. The water's contaminated, the filtration plant is fire damaged, the power goes and the mobile network is out. The supermarket is out of bottled water and the Prime Minister of the time isn't bringing any with him. We have no way of contacting people or finding out what's happening, we just have to wait. Our six-year-old says, this is the worst day of my life. Tick-tock. The four of us sleep in our clothes, listening out for the siren that signals a convoy evacuation. We leave the next day and travel back to Canberra. There is no smoke-free gap in the journey home. We pass fires. We can't see anything through the wall of smoke in Kuma. Tick-tock. Back home, we're removing ash from our newborn's ears, and my six-year-old is getting ash out of her eye. Tick-tock. 2020 starts with Canberra having the worst air quality in the world. Smoke seeps into our houses and it feels unsafe for the kids to be outdoors and indoors. Smoke defines the next month. N95 masks are new normal for us, but nothing can protect the kids. We feel we are failing as parents, failing to keep the kids safe. Tick-tock. The littlest constituents have the least power and the most to lose from choices being made right now. We know that we haven't felt the effects of the poor decisions from previous years. We know that fossil fuel companies have had decades to transition, but have chosen to prioritise wealth and exploitation and extraction. Tick-tock. That choice to prioritise profit without principle is a deliberate one. One that the current government is actively continuing and subsidising. Tick-tock. Connecting to nature is how I find hope and moments to quiet my urgent need to write the 18 submissions against fossil fuel projects with a three-year-old on my lap. Another letter to the editor, give evidence to the inquiry for the Northwest Shelf Project, the endless further evidence for Murrajigar, the complaint about fossil fuel sponsorships at the Midwinter Ball, the Walkies, the WA Nippers, TikTok. That need to turn up to that action, write another email to my local politician, Alicia Payne, about middle arm, fight for all the threatened species, do that thing that builds community, make a video with emperor penguin chicks, because that might just be the thing that makes the difference. TikTok. There's a restoration project up on the AZ volcanic Bequarsons. We're restoring an endangered ecosystem. We start by removing the St. John's Wart. It's a stunning yellow and bloom, and it was everywhere when we started in December last year. It felt like an impossible task. It was disappointing that something that looked so beautiful was so bad for the environment. When it dies off, it looks benign, brown, like it's no longer a threat, but it's a clever weed. It knows exactly how to take over and dominate. You tug that dead-looking St. John's wart, and you find at the soil level there are regrowth tendrils. They are green, healthy, and ready to go. They are very much alive, and they're everywhere. They are hard to kill off, and they will keep coming back. Tick-tock. 
Fossil fuel companies are the St. John's wort. They make us think that everything is better with them, gorgeously abundant, when you try to diminish their power because you know they are bad for the environment. You discover that they are hard to eradicate, and their tendrils are everywhere. In schools, sponsorship of your favorite sports team, that event, that scholarship, that leadership program, that charity fundraiser, propping up capitalism and consumerism wherever you look, popping up like weeds, supporting in any way they can to look vital and necessary, to keep the lights on. TikTok. When you know what you're looking for, you can pull out that sense John Ford. When you have a small team of committed volunteers, you can start in one spot and work to clear the area. As a group, you can have a huge impact in a short amount of time, when you thought it was impossible. TikTok. You have to be vigilant. You have to keep turning up. You have to continue to find out where the roots are and to keep pulling the weeds out. We now have to look more carefully to find the wart. We're, but now more people know what they're looking for. More people are plucking those weeds out, including the regrowth. TikTok. That's what Rising Tide is. A group of committed, passionate, resilient people. Turning up, growing into a mass movement, an unstoppable force that will continue to take on the fossil fuel weeds until there are none left. Time is running out. TikTok. Uh, next, it's my great pleasure to introduce Anjali Sharma. Anjali is an exceptional young climate activist. Now 19, she was the lead litigant in Sharma versus the Environment Minister at just 16. This um, groundbreaking legal action successfully established that the Environment Minister owns all young people a duty of care. Although this was defeated on, on appeal, Undeterred and forever resilient, Anjali is continuing to campaign. She is now working alongside other young activists and with Senator Pocock on the campaign for the duty of care bill. My story starts in a small village called Lucknow in central India. Despite not having much, it's undoubtedly the most beautiful place I've ever seen and ever been. I come from a village where cows and stray dogs roam the streets, where people push wheelbarrows down sandy alleyways selling anything and everything, where you call everyone brother, where the houses are designed in a way that you can play on the rooftops, and when it gets warm, you and your cousins drag up sheets and pillows and sleep under the stars. This village, along with the rest of India, is on the front lines of the climate crisis. Earlier this year, floods devastated my home country, killing at least 48 people in less than a month. More than 40 in my home state were missing. Infrastructure was damaged and roads lost in what was a once in a hundred year event that somehow has occurred severely more frequently than that. In a country without adequate resources to rebuild after such disaster, in a country without adequate resources to safeguard its population before the next one, in a country where there are villages that still have a contaminated water supply from floods that occurred in 2017. Earlier this year, before the floods, 
My village was engulfed in a horrific heat wave. The asphalt was melting, rubbish piles were on fire, and birds were falling out of the sky. In a country where only one in five has access to air conditioning, where many don't have access to clean drinking water, where insulation is so poor that people resort to dipping blankets in cold water and hanging them on their doors and windows to do what they can to keep the heat out. Having lived on the other side of the world for most of my life, this is not something that I can say I've experienced firsthand. But what I have experienced is finding out that your family is in danger through a new segment. Calling and calling only to not get through because the floods have taken down the cell towers. Not hearing from family for days and not knowing if they're safe. These are stories not unique to India. These are stories replicated across the global south in places like the Pacific, the Torres Strait, Asia, South America. Countries that are on the front lines of the climate crisis despite their people having done very little to cause it. Countries that are calling out for greater climate action. Countries whose calls fall on deaf ears, drowned out in the, in the ears of our governments by those of fossil fuel lobbyists and donors who line the pockets of powerful politicians and its marginalised populations that become collateral damage. It's clear that while climate change will affect everyone, it will not affect everyone equally. Climate change is an issue of racial equality and also intergenerational justice. Because it's young people too who will have to live to face the impacts of decisions being made in Parliament today and unfortunately, these decisions are being made with a horrifically short-term perspective. Our elected representatives struggle to look beyond their three-year electoral terms, implementing policies to cement their next term in Parliament, rather than to cement the futures of young people as climate change brings natural disasters with greater frequency and severity. A coal mine has just been approved again out till 2073. This is what the duty of care concept aims to change. It aims to establish a long-term view and perspective on how today's decisions will impact current and future generations. When I was 16, I argued that young people are owed a duty of care to be protected from the worst impacts of the climate crisis before one of the country's highest institutions, the federal court. It refused to hear us. But despite this, the duty of care concept is still alive and kicking because it is more important than anything today. This duty is now in the form of a bill before Parliament and it aims to ensure that our health and well-being is a paramount consideration when decisions are made on fossil fuel approvals. And if any fossil fuel approvals have too adverse an impact on our health and well-being, they should be disallowed. This bill is just another example of young people stepping up. Young people have the wealth of the world's knowledge at our fingertips and the wealth of the world's news. Every day we hear of new climate disasters, of new projections, of new records being broken. 
All this juxtaposed with new fossil fuel approvals by our governments. But we aren't taking this lying down. Around the world, young people are stepping up, holding their governments and big polluters accountable. Around the world, young people are litigating, petitioning, striking, lobbying, creating and galvanising a movement that is much bigger than any of us. And I'm proud to stand alongside several of those young people today, and Alexa, an other amazing young person who is doing so much for our world. And I hope that everyone here hears the calls of young people and those on the front lines and does what we can in our personal capacity to amplify them and together hold our governments accountable. Thank you. Our next speaker is Senator David Pocock. Uh, Senator Pocock is the first independent senator to be elected from the ACT and is a long-time climate campaigner. He has seen the power of direct action firsthand uh, while protesting the Moores Creek coal mine by locking on with farmer Rick Laird in 2014. Since his election uh, last year, he has campaigned hard to push the government to take bold and ambitious action to address climate change, including working with Anjali on the duty of care bill. Thank you, Annie, and, and thank you all so much for, for being here and, and to Rising Tide for the great work that you're, you're doing. I was actually up in Morse Creek last weekend and caught up with Rick Laird, who I, who I locked on with on, on top of this, this uh, super digger in this, the start of what is now a, a coal mine in the middle of a critically endangered uh, box gun woodland. Uh, one of the, the it was the, the, the largest intact box gun woodland in the country. And um, when we were there, they had sort of shifted the uh, overburden a bit and we'd locked on. Uh, since then, it's an enormous, enormous coal mine. Uh, they've just talking about putting in a, an application to extend it further. Um, Whitehaven made $2.7 billion worth of profit this year, we've heard. Uh, and yet when they got the approval, said that it would be too expensive to remediate the mine. So just able to leave this big hole there forever. Uh, and to me, this, to top it off, talking to local farmers, their boreholes ran dry for the first time ever. Um, Whitehaven stole a billion litres of water during the last drought. World farmers were, you know, shooting livestock and, and, um, and struggling. And for me, it really highlights having seen the direct impacts and, and being frustrated outside of politics, getting in there, you realise that we're, we're dealing with state capture. Um, we're dealing with, a, with a, a system that has been totally figured out by the fossil fuel companies. And there seems to be three ways that they've, they've, they're exerting their influence and creating a situation where they are putting short-term profits ahead of all of our futures, and particularly young people and future generations' futures. Firstly, there's political donations. We all, we all know political donations are an issue. Um, the resource industry is by far the biggest donor to, to the major 
major parties. Next, there's this revolving door between um, advisors and politicians and the fossil fuel companies. And you, you see it all the time. Um, I mean, the fossil fuel industry employs, um, and, and lobbyists have included former Liberal Party, National Party, and LP ministers, Ian McFarlane, Martin Fuchs, and John Anderson. There's a long list of, of, of this. And they've been very successful in lobbying to have these sort of sweetheart deals when it comes to approvals and to have no credible transition plan from these, these company, companies. The third piece, uh, which has really blown my mind um, in there, is lobbying. Australia has such lax lobbying laws. It's, it's embarrassing. There, there are almost 2,000 lobbyists in that building who are totally undisclosed. No one knows who they are. They have 24-7 access. There's a lobbyist register for you know, actual lobbyists who are employed by lobbying firms. But even that's lax. If you, if you break the lobbying code of conduct, the worst thing that can happen to you is a three-month break from lobbying. <laughs> and then you can come straight back. You know, in, other, in other countries like the US and the UK, you think of the US and you don't think better than us when it comes to lobbying. Um, yeah, they've got civil and sometimes criminal penalties, whereas we just have this super relaxed um, approach to it. It's something that I've, I've been pushing the government on, particularly the 2,000 people who we have no idea who they are. That is just totally unacceptable. Access is a good thing, but we should know who is accessing the people's house. We should know who is in, in parliament in the year of, of politicians. And uh, Kate Cheney is doing some great work on this, as is Monique Ryan, um, and my team has been working with them and, and a whole bunch of society groups to try and continue to highlight this issue and get some, get some real change um, in there. They've both got private members bills that seek to do that and we'll, we'll be supporting that from the, from the Senate. I wanted to touch just briefly on, on the Port of Newcastle. You, you all probably you know, know just how, how big it is. It's the largest uh, coal exporting um, port in the world. Uh, more than 10% of the world's seabound coal goes through that, that port. The, the coal that goes through that port and is burnt um, As, as, as well as coal from, from the other ports, is double Australia's emissions. And so we've got to have a serious conversation here in Australia about having a government that's talking a big, big game about the transition. You know, we, we want to uh, electrify things and, and get the transition going. And at the same time, is expanding the fossil fuel industry through exports. We've heard, you know, that the, the the approvals of, of new coal mines, but gas is a gas is an enormous uh, issue in there, and there's, there's no signs of them them slowing down. And I think in all of this, nonviolent direct action has to play a key role. We have an incredible democracy here in Australia, and I'm hoping that more people are going to continue to vote for um, members of parliament 
who will do the right thing on, on climate, who will stand up to the fossil fuel industry. And if we keep doing that, I, I really believe we will have uh, probably a minority government that will take this seriously and, and have some um, meaningful action. But until then, when you have a government that is making decisions that mean that you cannot hand on your heart, tell your kids that they are going to be okay, um, then you look through history. There has been a long history of nonviolent direct action to get people's attention, to stand up for all of our um, all of our lives and our, our futures. And, and you know, I think when it comes to climate change, one of one of the, the issues for you know in the last decade or two, for many people, it seemed like this big thing out there. And we're now at crunch time where I think most people are starting to see, hang on, this is, this is the here and now. This is about the people and places I love. It's affecting them now and it's only going to get worse. This isn't the new normal. This is uncharted territory. And so, yeah, I, I really thank Rising Tide for the work that you're doing. Um, I would urge you to get, in, get involved, talk to, your, talk to your friends and family, see how you can you can help out um, and ensure that um, come November uh, there's there's a big crowd of people uh, getting amongst it and, and um, causing some mischief up there. Our next speaker is Alexis Stewart. Alexa is a 19-year-old activist from Rising, Rising Tide in Newcastle. During her school her high school years. She was a central leader of the school strike for climate movement in Newcastle. And since Rising Tides relaunched this year, she's been a key organiser for this quickly growing movement. Thanks, Annie. And um, what a crowd tonight. This is so <laughs> exciting. I can't tell you how amazing it has been going around the country and speaking to full rooms of people who are just ready to do something and ready to come to Newcastle in November. Um, it's an incredible feeling, so thank you. I too wanted to acknowledge that we're on Ngunnawal land today and pay my respects to um, elders past, present, and also acknowledge the Awabakal and Waramai people back in Mullumbimba or Newcastle, where I'm from. And I wanted to start with a little bit of my story and my first experience of activism, which was in those school in the first school strike for climate that there was in Newcastle. Hands up, who was um, who's been to one of those school strikes? Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> they were pretty bloody epic, and I remember that day still so vividly. There were a few hundred of us kids in our school uniform marching down the street, our fists in the air, chanting. And I remember how empowering that felt. But more than that, I remember it as the day when something inside of me was unlocked and when a fire in my belly was lit. In the days and in the weeks after, I remember I got home and I started researching heavily into the climate crisis. And I spent hours and hours researching what it meant for my, the, my future and for the climate and just really struggling to wrap my head around that. But even more so, what I just could not comprehend was the fact that people knew about this, right? It wasn't as if I just discovered some top secret confidential information. People have known about this for decades. 
So what I just could not understand was why more parents weren't out stopping coal trains in a desperate attempt to salvage their kids' futures, or why my teachers weren't pounding on the doors of politicians begging that they do something. And it was a really hard time, and I remember one particular morning feeling especially upset and crying about the climate crisis as I walked to school. And as I walked through those school gates, I tried to compose myself. And I vividly remember in that moment vowing to myself that I would do everything that I could to fight for the future of life on this planet. And then everything that I feared the most started to happen. And we've heard that tonight, those horrific bushfires in 2019 that we heard from, from Amy. We've just been to Lismore and 18 months on, they still have not recovered from those floods. And all around the world, like Anjali described, people are suffering. And I have been, since I've been 15 and even before then, I've been watching this all unfold and just feeling so powerless. Because while the climate crisis is here and while people are suffering, what is our government doing? What they said they were gonna do is they said that they were gonna end the climate wars. Before Anthony Albanese was elected, he said that he wanted climate action to be his legacy. <laughs> it, it is laughable because a year on, we know that that is just greenwash. We know that it is just more lies from a government who is meant to protect us but is actually just in the pockets of the fossil fuel industry. The reality is that they are continuing to approve new coal and gas projects. So now that it is them that is waging this climate war, and it is the most horrific war that has ever been waged. It is a war against nature, against our climate, against millions of species. It's a war against billions of people, against me, against my entire generation, and against all of those yet to come. So I hope that tonight we can take this moment to look each other in the eye and say that we are going to stop this war. That we are going to vow, like I did to myself when I was 15, that we will fight with everything that we have for my generation, for those to come, and for every living thing on this planet. We vow that we will do everything in our power so we don't leave them with dust. We won't give up on them and we won't give up on us. One of the things that scares me the most about the climate crisis is the idea of climate tipping points, right? That if we reach certain thresholds, um, massive and irreversible changes will occur that will spiral outside of our control. And the scary thing about that is that um, it means that some, it means it's so much harder to predict and it means that some things are just inevitable. But the thing that gives me hope is the fact that there are social tipping points. And history shows us if we can build a movement that has enough power and enough scale, we can build unstoppable energy that makes massive, radical, transformative change just inevitable. And I truly believe that if we can pull that off, we will see victories that cascade around Australia, if not the world. 
And that is what excites me, and that's why the three of us are here today. Because it's 2023, and we know that we need transformative change. We know that we need to build a social movement that has the power to bring about that transformative change. And we know that it's time to use the biggest superpower that social movements have, and that's civil resistance. We know that we can do it because it's been done before, right? The Indian independence, the suffragettes, the American civil rights movement, the campaign to save the Franklin or the anti-CSG campaign in the Northern Rivers. There's no shortage of examples. So we know that we can do it and we know that there is no more, more important time than 2023 because while time is rapidly running out, the apocalypse is not yet locked in. And so that's Rising Tide's vision, is to build a civil resistance movement of historic proportions. And so to build this civil resistance campaign, we need three things. Firstly, we need an inspiring and achievable goal. Secondly, we need to do deep organising within our communities. And then thirdly, we need escalatory disruption. And we have that goal, and that's to shut down the, wor the world's largest coal port in Newcastle. Because as David Pocock mentioned, it is responsible for 1% of global emissions. That is almost as much as our entire domestic emissions. So it's a target of global significance, and we just have to shut it down. And I'm not talking about for a few hours, I'm not even talking about for a few days, I'm talking about forever. Then the second thing is that we need to do deep community organising. And that looks like going out and sharing our stories and sharing our concern and fear about the climate crisis and sharing what needs to be done. It also looks like talking about our vision for hope and, about, and then about moving people to action. And then the third part of this is about escalatory disruption. And that's what Rising Tide's doing. In April, we stopped a coal train. In November, we're going to be blockading the world's largest coal port for two days, which is set to be the biggest civil disobedience for climate in Australia's history. And then next year, that's when we're going to unleash waves of civil disobedience and civil resistance until we cause such major disruption that um, the fossil fuel industry and their exports just becomes untenable. And that's what I'm really excited about, and that's how I really see that we can win this. Because if we can have a flagship battle in Newcastle that ignites a vibrant and a massive national campaign that is audacious, that is determined, and that is absolutely unrelenting, we will be able to cause massive, ongoing disruption of this, this industry that's killing us, and we will be able to smash their social licence while we're at it. Because how amazing would it be if we get to the point where we are able to have this ongoing, sustained disruption and we are both just physically and politically unstoppable because we have built a movement that is so numerous, so diverse and so united that the vast majority of the population are behind us and we simply become unpoliceable. vision and that is what we're going to do. 
I know that for me, like so many people here, I've been struggling with climate anxiety and a growing sense of despair for years. But even though things are looking more just dire than ever, I can honestly say that I have never felt more hopeful because I believe in this so strongly. I believe in civil resistance and I believe in people power. And I'm just sick of feeling powerless. So let's get angry, let's get organised, and then let's fucking win. <laughs> now I'd like to introduce Sean Murray, another dedicated organiser with Rising Tide in Newcastle, to share more about what's planned for the blockade. Thanks folks. Yes, the oceans are rising, but so are we. Yeah. Um, so as Alexa said, Rising Tide is organising what we think is going to be the largest climate civil disobedience in Australian history. Yeah. You made that. Um, so we're, we're expecting that in late November, we're going to have 3,000 plus people. Um, and our plan is to blockade the harbour to stop the coal ships. Um, it has happened 11 times before. And basically, has anyone been to one before? Quite a few, yep, that's great. Um, so basically, as you'll know, um, hundreds of people paddle out to occupy the, the channel um, and stop coal ships yeah, in like uh, kayaks and tinnies and homemade rafts, you know, whatever it takes. Um, and, but this year, however, we're planning to escalate. So not just far greater people, far greater numbers, but also duration. So instead of just doing it for six hours, this year we're planning to do it for 30 hours. So two whole days and overnight. I'm not sure if that qualifies as uncivil disobedience or not, um, but it's certainly we think an escalation at this point is necessary. And again, the other difference is that it's this is not as has been the case previously, this is not now just an isolated tactic. Instead, this is a stepping stone. As Alexa was saying, in April, we did this action. We had climate camp, 300 people from around the country gathering in Newcastle. Um, we had you know, speeches and workshops and all the rest. And then we did this action where 51 of us were arrested. There were you know, heaps of others there. Um, and we stopped a coal train, we unloaded a bit. We made news and we, we won we won in the media that day. We made it into BBC News. You know, the story went around the world. That was our, you know, our first major action. The People's Blockade in November is going to be our next major action and it's going to be like 10 times the scale. So we have a trajectory and every three months, we've actually been doubling the number of people that are involved in Rising Tide. And so if we can keep that growth going, then by next year, we're going to have 10,000 plus people who have pledged to engage in civil resistance and or support those who are. So and at that stage, we're going to commence waves of civil resistance. So not just symbolic actions, but actions that directly challenge and confront and materially disrupt this industry. Yeah. So... For the People's Blockade in November, our lead demand is no new fossil fuels um, because 
not only are we we're campaigning to shut down um, the world's lo largest coal port by 2030, which is obviously critical in and of itself, but we're also directly ch um, challenging and eroding the social license of all fossil fuels. Because this is the world's largest coal port. It's a massive symbolic target. Also, the week after this action happens, you know what's going on? It's uh, COP28, right? So world leaders are, are going to be you know, flying to meet for the climate talks. And actually, before that happens, we're going to have an opportunity to show the world what real climate action looks like. Because real climate action, thank you, yeah, that's right. This is what real climate action looks like. Real climate action is not more talking. It's not more greenwash. It's not more business as usual. Real climate action is shutting down the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. <laughs> Folks, we've got a little video that we're just going to show you. If For those of you that haven't been to... Um, a, a blockade before. This is this is an example. Can't you hear the bells signal the warning? Here comes the storm. Best we be gone. Out to the street where the legions are forming. I heard the call more than ever before. If we just scream at our screams. So hopefully that gives you a bit of a sense. It'll be like that, except instead of wearing red, we'll be wearing blue. Um, it's going to be for two days, as I said. There's going to be thousands of people. Um, and there's, there's going to be people on the beach. There'll be food stalls. There'll be heaps of music. There'll be speakers. There's going to be lots of kids' activities. It's basically a protestable. Okay, so it's, it will be actually a good time. Um, there's going to be, we will have heaps of boats and kayaks available and they're going to be going out, you know, probably uh, in groups for like an hour or two to maintain the occupation of the channel um, and paddling out for about, you know, 200 metres into the, the middle of the channel. Um, there's also going to be larger, like pontoons and rafts and bigger boats, including safety boats. I think we've got about four Greenpeace um, safety vessels that are going to come along. Um, so the, one of the best things about this tactic is that 
yes, we are stopping the shipment of coal via the world's largest coal port, which is like 400,000 tonnes of coal a day goes out through this port. So as long as we are there and we are stopping that, um, but it's also really fun and family friendly. So it's the best of both, both worlds. And it gives, it's kind of a bit of choose your own adventure in terms of how much you want to be involved in the disruptive action. Um, <clears throat> to describe it a bit more, on the 24th, the, the Friday, we're going to be doing um, a bit of training and planning and um, pre preparation for the weekend. Then on the Saturday and Sunday, the 24th and 25th, sorry, 25th and 26th, that's when um, we're going to be doing the blockading. Um, but there's also going to be, again, lots of speeches, live music, kids' activities. Then on the 27th, the Monday, that's when we'll be coming together to plan for the next steps in the escalation pathway. Um, it is on the lands and waters of the Awabakul and Waramai people at Horseshoe Beach, um, Mullenbimba, Newcastle. Uh, it's actually very close to Newcastle City. Um, we have been yarning with local mob and building some solid engagement for the event. So we're really hopeful that, hopeful that we're going to have a number of First Nations speakers. Um, we'll be having some culture sharing, including dancing and a smoking ceremony before the flotilla launches. Um, and we're also hoping to have several First Nations uh, musicians performing. Um, in terms of accommodation, there will be uh, camping, hopefully quite nearby, um, but also there will be billeting options that we're arranging for anyone who's not keen to camp. Uh, we do have an amazing program of music as well lined up. Uh, we've got Earth Boy, if that means anything oh, to you. Yeah. It does to some, that's great. Um, our Tijuana Cartel, which is another great band. We've got an amazing local band called Gambira Mob. Um, and so we're, we've also got, also got other acts that we're still confirming. So we're attempting to mainstream disruptive um, climate action and we're hoping that people come for the music and just for the whole protestable and they stay for the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, as I said, we're going to have a lot of workshops and speakers. Um, we're aiming to platform as many frontline voices and stories as those like those we heard tonight um, because we think the stories of First Nations people, Pacific Islanders, young people uh, and those who are surviving climate disasters, we feel that all of those stories are critical that we elevate those voices and stories. Um, it is going to be very safe uh, and fun for kids and families. There is a whole kids program including kids live music, interactive um, theatre performances and face painting. Um, and then in terms of arrestability, um, it's held on public land and waters. It is legal to gather and protest. Um, don't read everything you, or don't believe everything you read in the daily tally. Um, but it is legal to gather and protest on a public beach and to uh, paddle in the harbour. And thousands of people um, have already participated in the 11 blockades that have come previously and all that time only one person has ever been arrested uh, and he had to try quite hard. <laughs> um, but also we don't know what's going to happen overnight. This, as I said, it's an escalation. We're going to try to hold the channel overnight and stop the ships. So if folks are interested in participating in 
uh, action that may potentially be arrestable, then we suspect that there may be opportunities for that. <laughs> Hopefully, though, our, it's our, our power, it's strength and power in numbers, right, that will carry the day. So the more of us there, there are, the more likely they are just to go, nah, you win. <laughs> so um, I think I've said all of that. Boats, you can BYO boats if you want to. Obviously, you're travelling a bit of a way. We're going to source a bunch of, of kayaks. We're going to be having a bit of a raft-making competition as well, I reckon. Um, and we're going to make floats. It's going to be like Mardi Gras, but on the water. I reckon. So a bunch of different floats. You might want to, you know, put your heads together and have a Canberra float. Um, so, and lastly, I think what's what is going on at the moment as we do this tour is we can see the momentum growing before our eyes. So as we've been touring around, yeah, we're speaking to rooms full of fired up people who are really excited about this. Um, Brisbane has a turnout goal of 300 people. Adelaide has booked and is rapidly filling a coach. They've got a turnout goal of 100, but we're actually expecting that might get more. Um, Melbourne are talking about three to 500 people. Um, so yeah, we're hopeful that there's, there's gonna be like these big hubs of activities in all of the major cities and even some regional centers as well that bring a lot of people to complement the great local organizing that we've been doing on the ground in Newcastle. So I think that is about the guts of it. Um, do you want to do a quick chant? Yeah. Yes. What is it? Oh, well, I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> Thank you, Senator. <laughs> it, goes, it goes like this. Um, you say, stop the coal. Stop the coal. Yeah, it's got action or something. <laughs> so stop the coal. Stop the coal. Lock the ships. This is Lock us, the ships. us paddling on our, in our kayaks, right? So stop the coal. Lock the ships. We say no apocalypse. We say no apocalypse. Let's do it together. Stop the coal. Block the ships. We say no apocalypse. Stop the coal. Block the ships. We say no apocalypse. Stop the coal. Block the ships. We say no apocalypse. Thank you. Who's pumped? Oh, yeah, fantastic. So my role here is to talk about the Canberra Hub, the Canberra Contingent. Alright? We've got through the theory, now it's up, up to us to step up. And you've already done that. Because look there, I'd say we've we've got more people here in Canberra than anywhere else. Um, the reason I've been asked to come up with the Canberra Hub is because I participated in the, a few other Canberrans with uh, the climate camp back in, in uh, April. And if you're careful there, I wasn't on the coal train, but I was underneath it. <laughs> um, so why am I pumped up about this? Uh, well, firstly, you know, passionate that we are... We're, we're at the end game if we don't turn this thing around. Future generations are stuffed if we don't turn it around. Second, as I think, what a big, hairy, audacious goal do they have? Yeah, stopping the Hunter Valley, 
stopping that coal port. It's powerful, it's clear, it's simple and impactful, and it'll resonate around the world. What about the Rising Tide team? That was another thing that really impressed me. Youthful, passionate, and so strategic. All right? So critical for this being a success. Also passionate about this being a just transition. The Hunter Valley is addicted to coal. All right? So it needs to be a just transition. And that's personal for me. I was brought up on a farm in the Upper Hunter Valley. My family actually relied on the, on the coal mines. My brother-in-law was a, a coal truck driver. My father used to trade in, in scrap and, and other surplus materials from the mines. And my sister had a plant nursery and provided trees for the regeneration. So it is, we've got to think about a just transition and bring these communities along. So it's great that Rising Tide is very much in there. There's groups like um, the Hunter Alliance, which is bringing together communities, the unions, and hopefully in time, uh, the companies themselves for that. We don't want another BHP steel closure scenario happening again. And there's so many great opportunities up there, like the offshore wind. The other thing that was really impressive and is talked a bit about here is the uh, connection with First Nations. Of the, I think. It, I would suggest maybe half, maybe more than half of the speakers at the climate camp were either uh, First Nation Australian or from the Pacific. And you can see that they're, and we were actually held a camp on a, um, on a, a business run by Indigenous uh, people. So that, to me, is really important. So coming back from there, we've started a Canberra hub. And uh, what I'd like to, the people who are involved now in the Canberra hub, if they could just stand up They've got wearing a, an armband. There we go, some at the back. So I'm pointing those out, Nick over here, and, and uh, uh, John will put his hand up. Uh, when we break at the end of this, please approach any of those people with questions or the rising tide people if you have questions. So our main purpose as the Canberra Hub will be to be mobilising for, uh, for November. After that, we may well get into our own civil disobedience and mischief-making around Canberra in the name of rising tide. More of that later. So uh, what our goal is, we set the goal of 200 Canberrans heading down to, uh, to Newcastle. And given we have probably 80 people here tonight and probably another 80 that wanted to come along, I think that uh, we possibly should be really aiming to blow that out of the water, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, so um, we're really looking for other people to come and help us. Uh, there's things like promotion, leafleting, uh, putting up posters. There's all the part of recruitment and mobilisation. It's phone calls, SMSs, emailing, networking, talking to organisations. Uh, we've got a transport coordination group, we've also got an events and training group and they're already organising two events. I think one on the 19th of October will be a non-violent civil disobedience training uh, and then there's a um, another information night and potluck uh, event being planned for the 5th of November. So there's a lot of planning that goes into these events so the more help the better. 
so soon um, we'll go into the process of, of people uh, uh, saying whether they want to come along or not and also whether they want to help out. So there'll be some clipboards come around and you can tick the box for whether you want to help with promotion or secondly, whether you want to become part of the organising group, the, the Canberra Hub. Uh, people have talked about transport. The options we're looking at is carpooling. Possibly some might like to go to public transport and if need be hiring some mini buses. But if you uh, sign up, you'll get updates about all of this. Can we have a big round of applause for the rising tide people who... They're coming to the end of their speaking tour, but you can see that this type of activity really does keep you going. Uh, then to our speakers, Amy, Angeli, David, and uh, Alexa, can we round of applause? Thank you. To the, to the camera hub who've organised tonight. Uh, it, it is a big, big thing to organise something like this. And I'd especially like to acknowledge the work of Ruth Raglas, who's spearheaded tonight. And then lastly, Sunday night, thank you for coming. You're going to be what makes this thing happen. And remember, action is the antidote to despair, hopelessness, and all of the other things, the grief, okay? Don't watch the news, be the news this November. If you'd like to share um, your response to what we've just heard. Um, hi, we were just talking about the logistics of kayaks and canoes and we were just talking about that kind of stuff. Oh, brilliant. That's very exciting. There'll be more time for that um, in the second half. Anyone else like to share? Uh, we were talking about the great possibilities of a, of a really mass action that triggers further mass actions and, and, and the cascade. I mean, we've got, we know there are cascading effects of climate disasters, but the cascading effects of mass action is really exciting me. I've been hoping for something really large for quite a long time now. So I'm you know, really keen that Rising Tide succeeds in this and I know I'll be coming and I'm really hoping that all of us here will be there. Yes. <laughs> I think we have time for one more. Uh, I'm getting close to my years by date and I'm rather cynical. <laughs> um, one thing that worries me is this uh, what to me is a fact that civil disobedience is not enough. We're now going to need to get ugly. I'm not quite sure how we do that, but uh, uncivil disobedience is going to have to <laughs> be the watchword. You know, we really, really need to be really angry and uh, averse to reason from those who use apparent reason to quiet us down and put us back in our box. Um, one thought I had. It should be possible to um, close off Canberra Airport when all the politicians are flying in for the start of the session. I think you could probably do that in about 30 cars. I'd like to 
see if anybody's interested in the fleshing out that plan. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much, everyone. I'd like Sean to come back up. Um, because what we're going to do is just open the floor for, you know, there'll be plenty of opportunity to ask people questions one-to-one -one after this, but is there any questions? Sean? <laughs> is there any questions that for, for Rising Tide or the Canberra Hub that you'd like to share, that you'd like to ask from the floor? I've just got a really simple, practical question. For full-time workers that can't get there on a Friday, is that alright? Can we, can we rock up like Friday night or...? Totally. Yeah. Yep. Anytime. Um, as a young person, getting to Newcastle is really difficult and, you know, working with School Strike for Climate, young people will struggle to get there. So, is, uh, will you guys be looking into the option of, like, hiring a bus so young people who struggle to get there can actually get there? Yeah, so Adelaide are bringing a big bus across uh, but to do that you've got to hire a driver and it's, it's very expensive so either carpooling or a minibus because we can drive the minibus ourselves so that that potentially is options there um, I've run poets trains where we've filled a carriage with poets going to Sydney and also we stopped at Mittagong um, and other places, and I'm thinking I would be happy to try and organise a group um, to go by train. I think it would be a wonderful trip. Mm -hmm. um, it goes on Friday at lunchtime um, from Canberra, so it would be quite good. Or there's an earlier one on Friday. Yeah, so hire a carriage, great. Just a practical thing for the nighttime um, blockade event. Um, you gonna have navigation lights for the kayaks and canoes? Uh, we're trying, that's detailed to be worked out. But yeah, we'll, we'll make it as safe as possible. Yeah. Also just on the transport. Yeah, it, it is possible to catch the, the bus into Sydney and then train, um, if that's an option. Like I think getting a large crew yeah. on the on public transport there yeah. already exists. Yeah. There's even trains from Canberra. <laughs> Modern city. Um, just, just following on uh, on accessibility and the um, uh, statement from the front, if there was a minibus, I think it would be great if there was one going on the Friday and then one going on the Saturday morning because I think you would pick up a whole lot of people who can't go potentially unless they went on Saturday. Thank you. I'm sure our transport coordinator's noting all of these down. 